0: But can I welcome Chris Stead. Uh, Chris, welcome. It's uh, very good to see you. Uh, Me and Chris have known each other for a few years. And, um, yeah, it's great to have you along. Thank you so much for coming to Basingstoke and speaking to us on these topics. Um, Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, Perhaps start off with, um, assuming you are a Christian, how you became a Christian.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I became a Christian when I was... Well, I, I mean, it's difficult to kind of put a thing on it. I was confirmed when I was 11. I um, haven't been to a kind of, I think it was Louis Palau, does that name mean anything to anyone, went to a Louis Palau thing, my mum was a Christian, my dad's not, my mum um, kind of said, you can come to church until you're 11 and then, then kind of decide whether you're going to keep coming, went to a Louis Palau thing, went forward, I had no idea what, why, um, uh, but sort of went forward and signed up and then I got confirmed and didn't really want anything to do with God um, and then uh, when I was 15 my mum got cancer and I got very angry at God and then when I was 16 she died Um, and uh, she died really well. She died praising God, Mm -hmm. and um, a few days before she died, she told me, I'm not afraid of dying, because Jesus Christ has died for my sins and risen again. I have no fear of death. I know where I'm going, Mm -hmm. and I know the God who loved me and saved me. So, um, that was, that was, um, yeah, pretty potent, and I I went away and thought about it, and um, the day before she died, I uh, thought, yes, I am I, yes, this, this, is, this really must be true, and um, mm-hmm. I became a Christian. Uh, she had she, fallen unconscious by that time, um, but she knows now.
0: <laughs> oh, wonderful,
1: <laughs> wonderful. Um, what is it you do now, then? Uh, so I am uh, o- ordained as a priest in the Church of England, um, uh, but at the minute I teach at Oak Hill Theological College. So I'm the Mike Ovie Research Fellow at Oak Hill. Uh, I finished my curacy last July, And um, I I don't know how many of you know kind of the story of what's happened, um, uh, what happened with Mike. Uh, Mike was the um, dearly beloved and highly esteemed principal of Oak Hill College who died very suddenly, I think it's over two years ago now. Mm -hmm. And um, he had such a vision for the gospel and gospel ministry in this country, he wanted um, every, every minister to be deeply, richly, trained in how to teach the Bible, how to understand theology, how to communicate the gospel to, our, um, to, to the world out there, which worships idols and, and needs to know God, and, and in many ways wants to know God, but, but needs to be shown sin and Jesus and the cross. Um, and so uh, after he died, Oak Hill wanted to carry on that legacy by training up the next generation of theological educators, and Mike had previously mentioned that might be something I could do, um, and so far, it seems, seems to be going okay. So I, I teach... Um, He's uh, understating si- things. Yeah, I, yeah, I teach true. systematic theology. Um, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. And I am also doing a PhD in um, systematic theology. So,
0: yeah. um, some of you may know that uh, the Christian Workers' Trust, uh, the trust that operates here at St. Mary's, um, is supporting that Mike Ovey fund, and uh, lots of us have given financially to that and prayerfully. But uh, the Chris is the product of, uh, <laughs> of that, so... That's great, um, Chris. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, you had? We were talking over dinner that you had plans to kind of go north, mm. but you found yourself staying at Oak Hill, yeah. um, and life kind of took some very different directions to how you were expecting it to go. Would you mind sharing with the group a bit about what yeah. you were saying at dinner?
1: So, I before I uh, went into ministry in the Church of England, I was a barrister, and I was working in Manchester, and um, then uh, you know sort of. God's call through the the voice of the ministers at Holy Trinity Platt, where I was um, uh, going at the time, said, uh, we we think you would be right for ministry. So pursued that, Church of England agreed, and came down to London um, to Oak Hill. The the idea being, my wife and I had said, I'm from South Wales, can't you tell? Um, And uh, (laughs) my wife's wife's from Buckinghamshire, and we always said we never want to live in London. Absolutely no way in our marriage we're going to live in London. So we thought we'd come down for three years and see how that goes. And then I did a master's, so it became four. Um, But then we ended up staying... Instead of going to Manchester, our our daughter, Talitha, um, was born with a very rare genetic condition. She had a catastrophic epilepsy and various other problems, Um, and she was under the care of Great Ormond Street Hospital, and Great Ormond Street said, please don't leave, we're the only ones that can look after her, Um, and so I needed to look for a curacy in London. The church where I'd been going as a student said, we'll try and give you a curacy, Um, and so they they dug deep. Um, I think someone delayed retirement so that they could fund my curacy. Uh, but they couldn't afford housing, so they, um, o- Oak Hill kind of rented one of their houses to, to Grace Church so that um, we could be there. So uh, I've actually been living on the Oak Hill campus since 2011, and will be there till at least 2022. Um, which, for someone who never wanted to live in London, is interesting. It's barely London, but still. Um, uh, yeah, so and, and uh, Talitha's life uh, was, uh, she died when she was uh, three and a half. Um, so that was a few years ago, um, partway into my curacy. Uh, Lots of her life was spent in Great Ormond Street. She was very disabled with lots of different things going on. Um, And um, that was hard. That was really hard. And uh, when she died, we were grief-stricken and bereft. And we certainly learned how to lament and um, to pray in a voice and a key of crying out to God and saying, how long, O Lord? Uh, And yet uh, there are various things that we realized that God is still good, God is still sovereign. And if we can't figure out how to to do those things, even going through this, then what we do know is when we look at the cross, the, the greatest event of evil and suffering in the history of humanity, as we killed our Creator, was planned and purposed by God for our good. And so we can't look at the cross and conclude anything other than that God loves us. And so if we can't see in the death of our daughter why and how God is doing us good, if we can't see how this light and momentary suffering is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, we have to learn to say, that's okay because Jesus died for us. And trusting in the covenant mercies of God and seeing Tilly's um, massive beaming smile when we spoke the gospel to her and sang the gospel to her, we know that one day, uh, so we named her after Talitha, Mark 5:41, when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Talitha cum, little girl, I say to you, get up. We just like the name Talitha because it meant little girl, but actually that was the text mm-hmm. that was preached at her funeral, because one day those words will be spoken with resurrection power, and we will see her again, and enjoy God forever with her. Um, it's not easy saying that. I can say it standing here, and there are we still have times when that's really hard to grab hold of. Um, but kind of going through that made us go, oh, I'm a minister in the church, and, and we, you know, we're sort of committed Christians, and we say we really believe this thing, but it's, it's when the rubber hits the road, mm-hmm. the chips are down, all the other clichés you want to throw in, that we have to say, do we really, really believe this? Mm. And um, yeah, we think we do. Mm.
0: Thank you, Chris, for sharing some of that, and um, thank you again for coming here this evening. Would you mind if I lead us in prayer? Please do. And then it's over to Chris. I'm going to say the words of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses all knowledge. Our gracious Heavenly Father, that is our prayer this evening, that as we look at the person of Jesus Christ, that you would show us the love that he has towards us. In Jesus' name.
1: Amen. Amen. Well, thanks so much for having me. Um, a little booklet should have been printed. Has that been printed? You have a little booklet. Great. <laughs> I can't use a printer, so mine's on A4, which um, is useless, isn't it? But there we go. Um, okay, uh, I've um, I've I've got a watch on, but I probably won't look at it. So if I just start going on too long, throw something at me. But you know give me a bit of a warm-up before you start judging me too much. Um, we're looking at the fatherhood of God tonight. I thought it might be nice to, um, to start in 1 John chapter 3. So if you could turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3. I'm reading from the, the ESV. Um, it's going to sound a little bit different if you've got the NIV, um, but that's fine. We can, we can work through it together. And I'm just reading three verses. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. There are just a few little themes in that short passage that are going to pop up as we go through um, the the handout tonight and through these uh, two talks on the fatherhood of God. And so I just, I just wanted to, to highlight them for you, and hopefully you'll spot them as we're, we're kind of working our way through the material. So firstly, the first word, see, behold. It's kind of a word that grabs you and says, look, what, what I'm about to say is actually really important. Um, John, in his gospel, has talked about how we become children of God, so uh, there's, a, there's a, a now dead um, Bible commentator called Alec Motier, you might recognize the name, um, but he, he was once asked, uh, I don't remember hearing, hearing a recording of a conference where he was asked, you know, what's your favorite verse of the New Testament? And he was like, I don't, I don't have one, I love all of it. And they kept pressing him, well, come on, come on, give us a, you know, if you were to have a favorite verse, what would it be? And he said, okay, it's going to be this, John 1, 12. To those who believed in him, sorry, to those who received him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. For Alec Motir, that captured the message of the New Testament, and John's Gospel is about how the son came down to be the son of God that we never were in order that we could be given the right to become children of God and enjoy knowing God as our father once again. And his first letter is John kind of carrying on, and he's now speaking um, more directly, perhaps, to Christians and saying, what does it mean to live as a child of God? And he's in the middle of this section where he's been talking about kind of purity and staying with God and watching out for the world and things like that. And he just kind of this see, this behold, he's like paused and said, let's look up for a minute. Let's just take a breath and reflect on the massive thing that I've been talking about. We're children of God. So the first thing I want to say tonight is see, stop, behold, behold this is an amazing thing that we're looking at. And that's the next thing he says, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Literally, he says, from what world or from what place is this love that we should be called children of God? This love the Father has lavished on us, it's an alien love. It's a love that he does not know. And the more we kind of dig into this, the more we realize how astonishingly true that is, that the love of god to make sinners his children is not the kind of love that we know we love people because there's something lovable in them that calls out that love from us but the out of this world love that god has for us is a is a love that reaches through hostility and sin and hatred and brokenness and despair and doubt it's a love that reaches through all of those things and grabs hold of sinners to bring them this is not a tap dripping. This is not a sprinkle on the windowsill. This is a Niagara Falls of love. This is out of this world. It is astonishing. It is alien. It is something that we do not know because it is so staggeringly gracious. And so we are. This isn't just a metaphor. Being called children of God is not just a particular way of thinking about things. We really are children of God if we are in Christ. This is our identity. This is our status. We really are God's children. And we need to keep reminding ourselves of that. We need to keep thinking about that. And what's interesting is that John then goes straight away into thinking, well, what's it going to be like for being a child of God? The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Straight away, John is saying, yeah, we're children of God, and it's very easy, and we're going to think about all the amazing benefits and privileges of being children of God later on, but John straight away wants to say, yeah, and the God whose children we are is the God who is hated by this world. Being a child of God means being willing to bear the cross that God's only begotten Son bore. It means being willing to live as one who Does not belong in a world that worships anything other than the living God. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So the fullness of being a child of God hasn't actually hit home yet. We really are children of God. There is a very much a now about this, but there's also a not yet. We are waiting, it says in Romans 8, we're waiting for the fullness of our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting for that time when Jesus returns, we will be raised, and then the fullness of what it means to be a child of God will be apparent, it will be here, it will be present. So being a child of God means living in a world that doesn't recognize us, that hates our Father and therefore hates us, and waiting. Being a child of God means the best is yet to come. And then finally, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Being a child of God means, and we're going to think about this in in the final session, but just sort of raise it now, bearing the family likeness. I grew up in Wales um, and uh, playing uh, lots of rugby. Um, Whenever we, I mean, (laughs) whenever we played English teams, I have to say the um, the PE teachers did tell us to, you know, go into tackles harder um, and that kind of thing. Um, you know, sort of the Welsh have an interesting relationship with the English, don't they? Um, but but growing up in Wales, there was a lot of rugby. Um, and there were, there were sort of, um, in my year, there were, well, in my school, <laughs> there were lots of Joneses and Williamses, I can tell you that. Um, but there, there, was, um, there were two families, a Jones family and a Williams family, who were like, you know, the rugby guys, like they, were, they were known for it and they were all kind of on the rugby team and, and I can never remember which way around it is. But either the Williamses was just sort of really, really good, really well respected and the Joneses were dirty. Um, and I remember in, in a, I think it was just a P lesson or something like that, um, let's say uh, a Williams uh, did something really dirty um, and I think <laughs> sort of stamped on someone's ribs while they were sort of in a, a sort of big pylon on the floor. Um, and I remember the PE teacher saying, um, you're acting like a Jones. You're acting like a Jones, because they were notorious. You're a Williams. Be a Williams. Being a Christian means act like one who is God's child. Don't be a Jones. (laughs) Sorry if you're called Jones. I mean, that's just, I didn't think that one through, did I? But but you get the idea, and we're going to think about that later on. So let's, let's dig into the, um, the handout that we've got and, and think about these things. I just wanted to, to raise some of these ideas as we started. And we've got a fantastic quote here from J.I. Packer's Knowing God. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that made the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian, as opposed to being merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. And one New Testament theologian says there is no one concept of God which dominates the theology of the New Testament more than this. So in terms of why I thought this is a good thing to look at, why I think this is a good thing for us to study, I want to start by asking how big is your gospel? How big is your gospel? Is it as big as God himself? If not, then it's too small. Something I tell my students when we're starting studying the doctrine of God is that the study of God is, in one sense, utterly useless. Notice I didn't say valueless, I didn't say worthless, useless. That is, we often measure things by their practical benefit. What is going to be the payoff in this thing for me, how is it going to fit into the way I already think about life and think about the universe and everything? But the reason why I say the study of God is useless is because God is not an object to be used. God is a being to be enjoyed for himself and for no other end than to be enjoyed. As soon as we start asking what kind of benefit a particular knowledge of God will give to us, we have reduced God down to something that can be manipulated. In the revivals in the past, um, (laughs) that strange country in the past, huge spiritual uh, advances were made by people who didn't recover programs, who didn't recover courses, who didn't recover various ways of doing things, they found themselves confronted by an enormous vision of the Creator God. They were captivated by a vision of the God who loved them and gave his Son for them, and that took their breath away and made them realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely enormous, and it's so much bigger than getting saved and going to heaven. Not less than that, but certainly so much more. Now, imagine that, um, and I'm speculating here, but I'm speaking from my own experience, that none of us really is where we want to be in the Christian life. Yes, there's a sense in which it's good to be um, always content but never satisfied. We want to press on into God and learn more and more, and therefore we should always be kind of wanting to know more. And even in eternity, when we have the knowledge of of God in the face of Christ, we're going to be learning more and more and more about him forever and ever. So in that sense, yes, we want to always be increasing. But I'm not talking about that kind of holy dissatisfaction. I wonder how many of us here tonight find ourselves in a place of spiritual dryness, or brokenness, or weakness, On our own, of course, we are weak, we are dry, we are hopeless, and we need the grace of God. But I want to suggest that understanding rightly who we are before God and the depths of the gospel as being nothing less than the depths of God himself are a robust antidote to spiritual sickness. So why are we doing this subject? Well, my prayer is that God will lift you up and drop you into a deeper understanding of the gospel than you might have had and that the reality of being his child in Christ will mean more than anything else. First up, I want to say we're not looking for a practical payoff. I want us to enjoy God for who he is, because in knowing God as our Father, there is eternal life. If there's nothing else you get out of this evening, I hope you will get that. But if you insist on cash value, there are actually ways in which studying the fatherhood of God is really helpful. Three quick reasons. It it helps us speak to non-Christians, to the world out there. I don't know if you've noticed, but society today is incredibly confused about who we are, about identity. We are a society of plastic people who can change at whim. There are so many questions that people have about who we are and what makes us who we are. Well, the gospel of the triune God helps us see the fundamental reality behind the entire universe and says that in Christ we have an identity so secure and we join a family so secure that it will last into eternity. And that, that issue of family is also very important. Loneliness is a really big deal. Um, the, uh, the Bishop of Edmonton, which is uh, the Episcopal area of the Diocese of London that I'm in, um, has spent a lot of time uh, sort of gathering together research on loneliness. And loneliness is a really big deal in our society, the number of people who feel incredibly lonely. The fatherhood of God tells us that God is collecting together a family for himself. And we have, therefore, something precious to offer. The fatherhood of God, the gospel of the eternal Son, is a hammer blow to isolation. And in those ways, it also helps us speak to one another. Knowing that we are family in Christ means that we can encourage one another in our identity. We can encourage one another and say, however confused our feelings might be, however hard things are going, this is who you are in Jesus Christ. You are a child of the living God know that it is so. And also that has huge implications for you here for St. Mary's in Basingstoke, that actually in Christ you are a family that is united by a stronger tie than the blood of kinship. And we're going to think about that later on. And then finally, how it speaks to me. As I said, I want to lift you up and drop you in the gospel depths of the triune God, who in Christ has made us his father and made us his child. Hopefully this can change the way we approach our Christian life. Now what we're going to be doing, particularly in this first session, but in the second one as well, is systematic theology. This is what I teach at Oak Hill, and you might be thinking, what is systematic theology? Um, Basically, systematic theology is, is looking to the same thing that you look to in your preaching um, and in your Bible studies week by week, it is looking to the Word of God and saying, this is our final and ultimate authority. In this book, God speaks. Every word is breathed out by Him, and therefore this is where we hear God. But rather than focusing on one passage and working through it verse by verse, which is absolutely vital to our health as Christians, what systematic theology does is say, what does the whole Bible Teach about a particular given thing. And not just piling up lots of verses together, but what must be true for um, all of the Bible to be taken seriously, let's say, and we're going to say, about God? And you've got kind of the question there. This is the question that I always introduce my students to. Systematic theology is trying to answer this question what must be true of subject X if the entire Word of God is to be taken seriously? And we're going to be thinking, what must be true of God if all that is said about him is to be taken seriously in Scripture? Why are we doing it? Because God is one. He speaks with one voice. He doesn't contradict himself. Like I said, doesn't undermine how we study individual books, but what we're saying is the one author of the entire Scripture is the one living God. And so we're going to believe that he doesn't contradict himself. We're going to say the whole Bible Um, gives us the context for understanding any particular passage. And then how do we do it? Well, like I said, we can either pile up individual verses, and we're going to do a little bit of that, but we also kind of ask the question, what's the sort of deeper, underlying reality that means we we can say things about God? We're going to be thinking about the fact that God is Trinity. He is one being in three persons. That is not spelled out like that anywhere in the Bible, and yet it's a very biblical teaching. We're going to think about that, and so this is sometimes called um, good and necessary consequence. That is what must be true if this particular verse is to be understood properly, and this is how Jesus read the Bible. So come with me to Matthew chapter 22. The story might well be familiar to many of you. The Sadducees, uh, the the group of um, this particular group of Jewish folk, uh, don't believe in the resurrection, and because well. So they would say they only have the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and there's nothing, so they believe, expressly said about resurrection in those books. And so they come to Jesus and raise this ridiculous story of a lady who marries seven brothers, one dies after another, and they say, in the resurrection, you know, come on, who's, whose wife is she going to be, thinking they're going to catch Jesus out. And in verse 29, Jesus answers them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, and this is the key point, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living." And that's quite an extraordinary thing for Jesus to claim whilst citing Exodus 3, verse 6, because that's what he's citing there. That's when Moses has gone to Mount Horeb and the the bush is burning and he's told to take off his sandals, and God says to him, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when you read the story, there's absolutely nothing about resurrection in that story in Exodus 3. There is no conceivable way you can say that in Moses' mind, as he encountered God at the burning bush, that God was telling him about resurrection. There's no way I think we can say in Moses' mind as he wrote that down, he was intending to say this statement is about resurrection. But what Jesus is doing is looking at that verse and saying, ha ha, God is saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Present tense. That is, there is some way in which the identities of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are continuing. Their bodies are dead, yet they as people, as persons, are still very much present and alive. And when you add in the fact that for Jewish people, we are souls and bodies joined together, but the idea of a soul continuing to existence forever without a body is absurd and, and abhorrent. So for God to be saying, I am their God, is like he's saying, yep, they will be raised again. They are alive now, but they will be alive in a true, fully human way, raised bodily. And so Jesus can say, don't you know the Scriptures? Resurrection it's right there in Exodus 3, verse 6. It's, it's not obvious when you read Exodus 3 that it's there, and what Jesus is doing is saying that a good and necessary consequence of God saying that must be the truth of resurrection, This is how Jesus read the Bible, and so that's how we're going to be reading the Bible. We're going to be thinking, what must be true of God if all that is said of him in Scripture is taken seriously? So let's now have a look at a few places, and I should say, um, I teach, so I teach Doctrine of God at Oak Hill. It's a third-year course. It lasts for two terms, and that means there are 60 teaching hours that I have for teaching the Doctrine of God, thinking about the oneness of God and the threeness of God and all that comes from that, and you're going to get it in the next 20 minutes. So... I'm going to be throwing out a lot of stuff and, and hoping some of it sticks, um, but hopefully with, with, with the handout, you, you, you can go back over things. Um, so if I speak quickly, I'm sorry if I lose you, I'm, I'm not trying to, um, but also there's a whole load of stuff kind of undergirding all of this, and so maybe in the questions we can go into that more deeply. But here are just a few sort of nuggets that tell us something really quite striking about God, that give us quite a direct picture of who God is and what he is like. So, Revelation 4.11 is the vision of John in the throne room of heaven, and everyone's praising God and said, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and praise, and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and have their being. If you like, this is the assumption that lies behind Genesis chapter 1, verse 0. That is, before, in the beginning, that there was God. God is not part of this universe. God is not a being within this universe. God exists outside this universe, for he made it, every last bit of it. He is the uncreated creator. And that has so many consequences. Some of them are this, that God is not limited. That means he's infinite He is not bound in any way by this created universe. It means he transcends, he he is beyond this universe. But precisely because he is beyond this universe and he is not limited by it in any way, he can be more intimate and close to us than anything within this world, precisely because he exists outside it. So he's not limited by it. And this, this is a really important point to make, God is not like you and me. And that's really good news. One theologian once said, you can't say God by shouting man in a loud voice. God is not just a bigger version of you and me. He is the uncreated creator. He is not like us. And that means well, certainly in Revelation 4, God is worthy of all worship and glory and honour and power. He created and sustains every atom of existence. Next little nugget, Hebrews 6, verse 13. Here, um, it's making the point about the certainty of God's oath to Abraham, God's, God's oath to bless Abraham. And the writer there reveals an assumption about God's nature. God had no one greater to swear by, so he swore by himself. God is perfect. There is no greater being than God that exists by whom to swear this most important promise. And that if it's not possible for there to be a greater being than God, that must mean God is perfect. It must mean God is unimprovable. It must mean he is perfect in such infinite degree, he is utterly complete. Back in Exodus 3, a few verses on, Exodus 3 verse 14, this is where God reveals his name to Moses, I am who I am. Now there's been many, believe me, many centuries and many pages of arguments spent over exactly what that means. But at least in that, there is a way in which God is saying, I do not define myself by anything. I simply am who I am. And that verb, I am, is the, the verb to be, he is the I am, he is being itself, he is life itself. That is who God is. Psalm 145, verse 3. Great are you, and greatly to be praised, and your greatness is unsearchable. God is incomprehensible. This comes from the fact that he's the infinite creator who is very much not like us. Now, to say something's incomprehensible doesn't mean it's not knowable. Notice, the psalmist says, you are great. I know you are great. That is something true that I know about you, but secondly, your greatness is too much for me to fathom. I know this true thing, but you infinitely exceeded in every way. An illustration I've heard, maybe you've heard it, sorry if it's a bit twee, but think of a massive beach ball. You can't get your arms around it but you can at least, you know, see it and touch it and recognise that it's there. If that helps, then then great. God is like a beach ball. Um, God, you can't get your arms around him, but you can you can grasp something of him. That's what it means that God is incomprehensible. And then finally, God is perfectly happy. In one Timothy one, Paul talks about the gospel of the blessed God it just kind of throws that word in there. But this word blessed, it means, it means, you know, happy is far too tame a word. It means full of delight. It means full of, of blessedness. God is a maximally alive paradise of joy. He is blessedness that is infinitely full. He is joyful and satisfied in himself. Happiness is not something God possesses. He simply is his own happiness. Nothing can increase it. Nothing can make him more joyful than he is. That's a pretty extraordinary picture of God so far, wouldn't you say? That is our God, and there's so much more. Like I said, 60 hours into 20 minutes might have been ambitious, but let's see, let's keep going. Um, And the next thing, of course, that we know about God um, is that he is Trinity. He is one God in three persons, in the doctrine of the Trinity, we feel the heartbeat of God's entire revelation for the redemption of humanity. What do we want to say about the Trinity? First, it is a revealed doctrine. What do I mean by that? You can't reason your way into realizing that God is three, that God is Trinity, that God is triune. In Matthew 11, Jesus talks about only the Son knows the Father, only the Father knows the Son, and anyone to whom basically they choose to reveal him. 1 Corinthians 2 only the spirit of a man knows his mind, so only the spirit of God knows the mind of God, Um, the idea there that Son and Spirit reveal the reality of God's Trinity to us. It is to be received by faith. We can't reason our way there, but having received it, we can still think about it. So, it's a revealed doctrine. It's a roaming doctrine. That is, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. I remember, uh, there's sort of key points where it comes out. Matthew 28:19, the Great Commission. Go, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Very clear. One name, three definite articles. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, but still the one name of God. Or the end of 2 Corinthians. Um, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Very clear places where we can kind of see one God and three persons Three individual identities that kind of are this one God together. But it's not, we don't just see it kind of pop up in those places. It, it's sort of everywhere. It's assumed behind every page of the New Testament. Paul's letters, every time, nearly every time he opens a letter, he says, Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, or, or a kind of variation thereon. And yet it's very clear he thinks Jesus Christ is God. So Paul is Trinitarian every time he opens his literary mouth and starts a letter. There's a distinction between God the Father and Jesus Christ, and yet they're both God. And when Paul is giving sort of some condensed summaries of the gospel, so Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7, when the fullness of time came, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under law, that he might redeem those who are under the law, that they might receive the adoption of son, as sons, and he sent the Spirit of his Son into their hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Whenever Paul thinks about the gospel, he thinks Trinity. God sends his son and then sends the spirit of his son. Paul, Paul didn't kind of have this like really set out. You, ho- hopefully you know the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. Um, you, you, uh, Robert assures me, he promises me you say it all the time. I'm sure you know it off by heart. Um, but basically in that, Paul doesn't have that kind of reasoned out. Paul just, when he has encountered God in the gospel, it is the triune God, the, the Trinitarian God that he has encountered one who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's a roaming doctrine, it's everywhere, and it's a reflected upon doctrine. What that means is that the church, particularly, and, and sort of the, the most turbulent time, I'm really trying to get this right, was the 4th the century AD, so the 300s AD, has reflected upon all of these things that I've just mentioned, and come up with that uh, that Nicene Creed, and said, in this form of words, it's not in the New Testament, but this captures the teaching of the entire Bible in this short paragraph, the Nicene Creed. It's reflected upon. What the church has done is, is think about how to best make sense of all that the Bible teaches about these three figures, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and how they're related to the one God of Israel and each other. So it's revealed. We, only, we can only learn about it here. It's roaming, it's everywhere, and it's reflected upon how might we go about building a basic doctrine of the triune God, then? Well, there, there, I mean, there are various ways to do this, and this is, this is kind of like the, the baseline, the sort of foundation thing that we need to get in place, and, and it's three Ds. Definite monotheism, that means one godness, monotheism means one God. Deity of Father, Son, and Spirit, they are all fully God. And difference, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit and the Father, so on and so forth. And I've got a few Bible verses there that you might want to check out. So John 10:30, I and the Father are one. James 2, don't you know that, you know, you say that God is one, you do well. The demons believe it and shudder. Um, 1 Corinthians 8, 5 and 6, it's kind of a repetition of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. So, definite monotheism, that is, whatever we say about God as Trinity, we can never sort of trespass over into making it sound like there is more than one God. There is one God. But also, there is more than one who is able to be called God. So Jesus is God, and, and, and I won't go through all these verses, he assumed he was God, and in the things that he did, he just assumed he acted like God would act. He accepted worship as God. That passage in Luke, he's healed the lepers, one returns to him and bows down, worshipping him, praising him, and Jesus said, was none found left to return and praise God, but this one. Jesus is happy to accept worship as God. Jesus asserted he was God, we see it there in Matthew, and he was adored as God. And you can see the the hymn in Philippians 2, where Jesus is given the name Lord, exalted, far above, every, uh, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There is no doubt, every page of the New Testament, Jesus is not a man done good, he is a God who became man. And the Holy Spirit is God, and you can check those verses out there. But also, they are not the same as each other. It is not as though Father, Son, and Spirit are just different masks that one God puts on to kind of jump around and be in different places at different times. There's an old heresy called um, Sabellianism. It's great, you know, sort of, you know, you, you want to be known in church history, uh, you know, many centuries down the line, become a heretic. Because then your name will be known by everyone. So there's this guy Sebelius. So i sorry. Don't become a heretic. Don't become a heretic. um, uh, Sibelius, um decided uh, that actually, as he was uh, he was reading the Bible, that actually it's not as though there are you know there really are three different let's call them things that are also God. No, no, no. What we have is one God, and he just wears different masks at different times. So you kind of have the Father, and that's mainly the God you meet in the Old Testament. Then he kind of like shifts and put on a new mask, and now he's the Son in the New Testament. And then also then you have the Spirit. It's, th- it's the one God, but in just sort of three different roles. That's definitely not the picture that the New Testament presents. The New Testament very clearly says that the Father is not the Son or the Spirit, the Son is not the Father or the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. They're definitely different. And the word person is the way in which Christian theology has, has tried to distinguish between them. But remember, if all this is kind of melting your mind, and maybe you're thinking, can you give me an analogy, can you give me an illustration to make sense of this that kind of connects it? No. <laughs> because, remember what I said at the start, God is not like us. God is not something within this universe that we can kind of compare to. There are, you know, unless he has shown us, you know, there are various ways God is like a shepherd, God is like a rock, things like that. But when it comes to the Trinity, there is nothing comparable. There is nothing that we can point to and say, well, you know, it's a little bit like that. So if you hear anyone say, I'm gonna, I'm sorry if you, sorry if Rob or, um, is it Klein? If they've used this illustration. Um, but uh, if someone starts talking about water, sort of water, ice and steam, or egg, you know, eggshell, egg white, egg yolk, um, chuck an egg at them, because <laughs> it's not a good way of talking about the Trinity. Um, uh, it's very well-intentioned, don't get me wrong. I understand that we want to try and connect this in, and if you've done it, don't feel bad, so have I. Um, but it's, it's, it's not a helpful thing to do, because it's, it's trying to bring God down. These are just ways of putting boundaries in place to talk about that which actually cannot be spoken of fully. God is one God, one God, definitely only one, and yet there are three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, So, that's kind of building a basic doctrine. You could go bigger, you could say, well, we know that Jesus is the sent God. God has told us, God has sent God, and he's told us why, and in the Spirit, God has sent God. We have um, this kind of picture, and so everywhere we see in the New Testament, we see Jesus, we think Trinity, because we know he is the sent God. Everything Jesus is doing is in, in some way revealing Trinity on earth as it is in heaven. So we know that what God does reveals what he is like, but we know he is not like us. We know he's infinitely beyond us, so we don't, we don't just say, um, you know, God, God has arms and legs because we see that in Jesus. That's a whole other story. But the point is that this is not isolated to a few verses. This is everywhere in the New Testament. This is who our God is one of my favorite theologians, um, a Dutch guy called Herman Barvink, said, the Christian mind remains unsatisfied until all of existence is referred back to the triune God, and until the confession of God's Trinity functions at the center of our thought and life. Behold our God, this is our God. What a glorious God we have, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He did not need us, he did not need us to complete himself because he is a maximally alive paradise of joy and love as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet in his freedom and in his love and in his grace, he looked out and created. And then we resisted his love and said, we don't want your life. And so he said, well, I'm coming back at you. I'm going to give it to you anyway. He sends his Son and his Spirit to bring rebel sinners home. This is our God. God has always, The Father has always been Father, it's not a name that he took on uh, when he created. God has eternally been Father. And that, that's kind of important because when may, maybe there are people here tonight who've had bad experiences of fatherhood. Don't think of earthly fathers and, and kind of build them up. The passage that Rob read just before he prayed, a little bit before that, it talks about the Father being the one from whom fatherhood on earth gets its name. God is not like a human father, but bigger Rather, we are pale, if we are fathers, we are pale imitations of him. He has always been Father. Well, he's always been Father, Son, and Spirit, but God, the Father, has always been Father. And this is, um, and Fred Sanders, another, another great theologian, this is a livelier life than any other life. God is love. In an infinite moment of eternal bliss, the Father, Son, and Spirit exist maximally alive, maximally happy, with a fullness so rich we can't even begin to speak of it the gospel is god himself john 17:3 this is eternal life that they know you god and john 17:26 i made known to them your name and i will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Yes, we want to talk about the gospel as rescue, we want to talk about the gospel as being saved from judgment and hell, but the gospel is so much more than those things. The gospel is that we get God himself, and that one day in resurrected bodies we and all God's people will enjoy this as creatures, but we will be part of this infinite life of love and joy. Now, I'm aware of the time. Um, I think we started about 10 past, um, five minutes. I can speak quick. A short five minutes. minutes. Cheers, Rob. Um, Okay, here we go. So, that is the gospel. God himself, being able to call God the Father as our Father, let's very quickly, talk about how we get there um, in our sonship and adoption. So, our sonship to God is the apex of creation and the goal of redemption. We were made to be sons, made in the image of God. That is a, that is a phrase that is loaded with kind of sonship and kingship and a whole load of other things. Luke three thirty-eight, the genealogy of Jesus goes right the way back to Adam, and do you know what it says of Adam? Son of God. So we were made as creatures to be sons of God, and there is a sense in which all human beings, as those made in God's image, can say in Acts 17, we are God's offspring. And yet, there is also a very real sense in which, by nature, we are now no longer children of God, children of wrath, children of the devil, Jesus says in John 8. Our sonship to God is no longer our native condition, one writer says. Things went wrong. And so actually, I want to make sure very clearly being heard, in one sense, all humanity can talk about being the the offspring of God, but the richer sense of God being our Father in this relational sense is only available to those who have been redeemed. What does that look like? Well, in the Old Testament, you've got the promise of the serpent crusher in Genesis 3.15. Paul, in Romans 9, when he's looking back, he sees Israel and he says, to them belong the adoption Romans 9 verse 4, top of the list. What are the blessings that the Jewish people had? To them belongs the adoption. And when you read through kind of how God redeemed his people, Exodus 4, um, God talks about Israel being his firstborn son. Go to Pharaoh and let my son go. Hosea, when he's looking back, says out of Egypt, I called my son. And throughout the Old Testament, it's not as much of a theme, but certainly it's there. Israel as a whole, as a people, is the Son of God, and yet time and time again they fail. They were the Son, they were never the Son that they should have been, and then you hear promises that there perhaps will be, there'll be a king in 2 Samuel 7, there'll be a king who'll be the Son that Israel never was, and then the gospel promises fall and fall and fall, particularly as you're reading Isaiah, and then you're reading in Hosea, In the place, Hosea 1.10, where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. That promise is building through the Old Testament, and then, of course, we get to the new. Jesus Christ, eternal son, obedient Adam. The bottom line is, God treats us and loves us as if we had done what Jesus did. God sees us in Jesus and loves us like he loves his own son. And you, you can um, see there the three um, places in Paul, these, these movements of adoption. This idea that God has chosen us out of our lowly status, out of our brokenness, unlike Roman adoption, where you would pick a son who was worthy to bear the family name, who is, you know, you know worth his weight in the gold that you're going to pay for him. God brings us into his family in spite of the fact that we are worthless and not deserving of it. And it is purposed in eternity, Ephesians 1. God looked at us and loved us even though there was nothing lovable. It was accomplished in the sending of his Son, Galatians 4. Jesus earned all the blessings of sonship, paid the price for our failure, and if we accept him by faith, then all that is his by nature becomes ours by grace justification is the doctrine that Jesus' righteousness is laid on us like a cloak. We are treated as righteous as Jesus. Justification makes things okay in the courtroom, but adoption brings us home to the living room. And then adoption is applied by the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, the Spirit of Sonship comes into our hearts and witnesses with our hearts, we are sons of God. Let's finish this section with that quote from Martin Luther, the German reformer. And this this kind of captures everything that um, I haven't had time to go through on this adoption section. But speaking of um, Galatians 4, and that little word, Abba, Father, Martin Luther says this, This is but a little word, and yet notwithstanding, it comprehendeth all things. The mouth speaketh not, but the affection of the heart speaketh after this manner. Although I be oppressed with anguish and terror on every side, and seem to be forsaken and utterly cast away from thy presence, yet am I thy child, and thou art my father for Christ's sake. I am beloved because of the beloved. Wherefore, this little word, Father, conceived effectually in the heart, passeth all the eloquence of Demosthenes, Cicero, and of the most eloquent rhetoricians that ever were in the world. Amen.
0: Thank you so much, Chris, for condensing 60 hours into yeah. uh, 40 minutes. Um, what we're going to do, we're going to just have a couple of minutes of questions. Um, we've, uh, Chris's next session, I think, is going to be a bit shorter, um, I think. That's so, yeah, That's fine. No, it's great to hear all this. Um, so we have another chance for questions there. Um, but I've got a question here um, speaking about uh, God's joy. Um, how do we square God's maximal joy with Bible passages that speak of God being grieved, such as Genesis 6?
1: Mm, yeah, that's a really helpful question. That's, that's a huge question. Um, and, um, hey, yeah, I, I spend a whole three hours um, in Doctrine of God talking about that very question, um, just specifically this idea of God's emotions, or the idea, can God suffer? Um, And basically, uh, like like I said, when we're reading the whole of the Bible, we read each of the parts in the context of the whole. And remember, God is not like us. He does not exist on the same plane of existence as we do. And so uh, John Calvin had this great little phrase. He talked about God accommodating himself to us, like a nurse lisping with children. So speaking in language that we can get that expresses something true, but not exhaustive. So, God in himself is this maximally large paradise of joy, and yet as we experience him in different relations to him, we can really say that if God were a man in this situation and we've treated him in the way, or we've spurned him and been wicked in the way that the people were in Genesis 6, then he would be grieved. And that really is telling us something true, it's not saying this isn't true, it's saying this is speaking about God in a way that we can understand, teach us just how horrific our crime is. If you want an illustration of this, Psalm 136 is a psalm that has a repeated refrain. After every verse, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. So it's kind of one characteristic of God, his steadfast love. And it's repeated. This thing happens, the steadfast love of the Lord endures. This thing happens, love. This thing, love. For God's people, that means redemption, that means salvation. For the mighty kings, for Sion, king of Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashanites, God's love means slaughter because they opposed his people. The same thing, the same love that is God is experienced by creatures in different ways depending on where they stand in relation to him. So um, that's kind of the beginning of an answer. But that's a great question. Can you
0: just say a little bit more on this? Because I I guess some of us, when we hear that God is not like us... Hmm. How are we meant to picture him in our heads? Because we're used to thinking of things by images. Mm. I mean, is that wrong to do that? How do we begin to understand him?
1: Um, yes and no. <laughs> so the second commandment says, in one sense, don't try and make an image of God. Um, uh, we, we have, uh, we've been given um, a word, uh, not a picture book. So we're to, we're to hear about God. Um, I know we can't, we can't avoid those things. And scripture itself is absolutely loaded with analogies. Um, and in, in a sense it's like you pile up all these analogies um, like God is a rock or God is a shepherd, um, God is all these various different things, none of them capture God as a whole. So what they do is they, like I said, true but not exhaustive is a really helpful little phrase um, that says this is really true, this teaches you something true about the way God is or about his character or about what he can be for you and the way that he is secure and safe and loving and guiding and so on. Um, but uh, none of them, precisely because there's so many of them, that's kind of telling us actually none of them suffice to adequately capture exactly what God is like.
0: Thank you, Chris. I've got another couple of questions here. What we do, though, um, is send some people off to tea and coffee. So uh, if you really want to stay, I'm not going to be angry or anything, so um, please stay put, but if this um, section of the room wouldn't mind going through to tea and coffee, and uh, you guys are the lucky few who can stay and listen to questions. But if you do want to stay, let's say, please do. But this side from about Colin onwards. um, Go for tea and coffee. Great. Okay, we've got another question here um, about, it says this, if if we become like angels when we enter the heavenly places by Christ, um, does our sonship change? Are we always sons, or do we become something more?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, that's that's really good. Uh, so yes, so that passage we read um, in in the resurrection, we will not marry or be given in marriage, for we will be like the angels. Um, what does that mean in terms of being sons of God? I mean, there's a whole kind of question about, you know, we're like the angels, we don't become angels. Um, Psalms like Psalm 82 seem to talk about sons of God. Is that talking about a heavenly council of angels that are there with God? Um, Perhaps. Um, That's a, that's a, a really interesting psalm to look at. But in terms of what our sonship will be, I think Romans 8 is very, very helpful here. So Romans 8 has said um, God has sent, you know, the Spirit of His Son, He testifies with us, crying out, "Abba, Father." So we really are adopted; we really are children of God. And yet Paul goes on to say, um, "Creation groans as it waits. What is it waiting for? The revealing of the glory of the sons of God. We ourselves groan as we wait. What are we waiting for? Basically, the fullness of our adoption, the redemption of our bodies." So there's a way. That's the kind of now and not yet. There's a way in which we definitely are sons. And um, just to clarify, when I'm saying sons, it's it's an official um, sort of non-gendered sense of sons, sonship. There, meaning meaning those who inherit, those who are um, uh, sort of. It's an official thing, not a gendered thing. So I hope um, I hope I haven't offended anyone by saying um, that we're I'm all. Just say sons what you mean of by that. Um, yeah. So, so uh, <laughs> you know, sons and daughters. Um, uh, uh, sort of the. Yes, the the sort of gender binary split there, um, but that uh, I've only been referring to sons. Um, yes, we are sons and daughters. We are children of God. And in John, particularly, it's interesting. Um, Jesus is the only son of God. Uh, we are children of God. Different words are used for those things. Um, but in, in Paul, uh, the word that's used um, is, is uh, a Greek word that, that means sort of making a son or this kind of idea of adoption. So that's why I've been using the term sonship. So yes, we really are children of God, we really are sons in that official sense now, but there's going to be a day when we are made made into the fullness of sonship in which that will be so defining of our identity that we won't know anything else, because we will be enjoying participating in God's triune life um, in a way that we just can't even imagine now. Um, And that's going to be extraordinary. Um, And and what's an interesting thing um, is that uh, in the new creation... Uh, we are not going to be able to sin. Have you thought about that? We're not going to be able to sin. There's no possibility of another fall happening. That's the promise of new creation. And isn't it interesting that in the new creation, our sonship will be maxed up and turned up to full volume? And I just wonder if there's a connection between those two things there. Um, So uh, we're now on session two, children of the living God. The first first session was kind of the, the heavy doctrine of God stuff we briefly transitioned into. um, We're made children of God in Christ, and uh, in Christ God God treats us, God the Father treats us as he treats his Son. And in fact, um, let me just start um, this session by a few verses from an old revival hymn that um, is really quite lovely. So near, so very near to God, I cannot nearer be, for in the person of his Son I am as near as he so dear, so very dear to God, more dear I cannot be. The love wherewith he loves his son, such is his love to me. We are children of the living God. (coughs) This final session um, is, is basically I'm thinking about how to think about the Christian life, specifically through the lens of sonship, of, of being children of God, of the fatherhood of God. So lots of the things we're going to talk about are the kind of things that we're aware of, these things matter to being a Christian, but but going back to that J.I. Packer quote right at the start, how does knowing the fatherhood of God perhaps shape or deepen or correct our approach to these various different areas? Um, Some of the things I'm going to run through quicker, some of the things we might linger over, um, but I've um, been given a stern deadline by um, Rob Phillips, so I will make sure I don't transgress that. So, children of the living God. First up, ch- God's children have peace of conscience. God's children have peace of conscience. Maybe we're racked with guilt about the way in which we've treated our own parents, treated our children, treated other people in our lives, sometimes illegitimate, sometimes actually... <laughs> when you're going to think about it, perfectly justified. Um, But as regards our Heavenly Father, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And maybe tonight you just need to hear that. There is no condemnation for you if you are in the Son, because God is as near to you as he is to Jesus. You are as dear to him as the Son is. There is no condemnation. So God's children have peace of conscience. Um, J.I. Packer, um, again, I think in that chapter, says his three-word summary of the gospel is adoption through propitiation. Propitiation, that word in the New Testament that talks about God's wrath, God's judgment being satisfied, God's justice being fully met in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You want to summarize the gospel in three words it 's adoption through propitiation. When our Father adopted us, he made sure that no charge would stick. That is what it means to be adopted by the living God. We have peace of conscience god 's children needn 't worry nor grumble. Um, one of the, um, uh, one of the treasures of the sixteenth century, the time when Reformation happened, martin Luther, John Calvin, all that kind of thing. Um, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church. You need to make sure you say that right, don't you? Nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church and started the Reformation. Um, One of the documents that arose out of that time in the sort of mid-16th century was the Heidelberg Catechism. And this was written by Zacharias Ursinus mainly, um, with someone else. And it is actually, it's one of the most published and circulated books in history is the Heidelberg Catechism. There you go, there's your interesting fact for today, um, on top of the Fatherhood of God. Um, but but the, the Heidelberg Catechism is a wonderful, wonderful, again, way of summarising what the Bible teaches. And um, one, of, one of my favourite questions and answers from the Catechism is, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who of nothing made heaven and earth with all that is in them, who likewise upholds and governs the same by his eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father, in whom I so trust as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and further, that whatever evil he sends upon me in this veil of tears, he will turn to my good. For he is able to do it, being Almighty God, and willing also being a faithful father. We needn't worry nor grumble because our father is sovereign over heaven and earth, and loves us with a love that is infinite and unchanging, and therefore we know that he is doing us good. Romans eight twenty eight. we know that God works all things together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Hebrews 12, the writer to the Hebrews says, expect, if you are children of God, expect to be disciplined, as as, as God, as a father disciplines children. I need to be very clear here as we look at things that happen in our lives. Luke 13, when uh, people ask Jesus, well, the Tower of Siloam fell on those people, or um, those people had their blood mingled with sacrifices by Herod, you know, what, what a horrible thing, and do we say that they sinned worse? Are we to look at the circumstances of our life and say, well, I must have sinned really badly to deserve this? Jesus says, no, 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 no. They, they, they are no worse sinners than you are. And he actually, he actually says, you know, the facts generally of evil su- and suffering in the world is in, certainly part of it is to say there's a problem with the world, um, there's a problem with a fallen, broken world, and it's a general message to everyone everywhere that we should repent lest we likewise perish. But the point is still there, particularly the Hebrews 12 point, um, that actually suffering is a little bit like a gymnasium, uh, a gym, That's kind of the word that's used for this idea of discipline, that actually it strengthens us. Um, I've not been to the gym for a while, you might tell, Um, but uh, it strengthens us apparently. You know, you kind of go through that kind of thing, you work out, you get stronger. The things that happen in our life, whatever they might be, for good or ill, God is shaping us more into the image of his son. And so therefore we needn't worry nor grumble. That doesn't mean we don't lament, doesn't mean we don't cry out to God with anguish and with um, a desperate need for help. But we can still hold on to this deepest truth that I was saying um, when Rob was interviewing me, that I might not be able to see, but then I'm not the infinite God. So, you know, there are quite possibly reasons that he has that aren't available to me. But because he is my father, I can trust, look at the cross and trust that he is ultimately going to be doing something good. So we don't need to worry and we don't need to grumble because we're children of the living God. God's children have 24-7 access. Calvin, John Calvin, for we must ever hold fast this principle that we do not rightly pray to God unless we are surely persuaded in our hearts that he is our father when we so call him with our lips. The most basic aspect of praying is knowing to whom we pray, and why we pray, and how it is that we can possibly pray. By now, hopefully, I've said it enough times, in Christ, we are children of the living God. We are his children. And we'll show it in our prayer life. We will show how well we have grasped the fatherhood of God by our prayer life. The initial act of adoption is not the final move. There's a relationship to be enjoyed Being a child of God means being caught up into the life of the Trinity. And this has various implications. And the first is boldness. We can be bold in approaching God in prayer. Hebrews 10, let us boldly, no, Hebrews 4, let us boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence. We are children of God, and therefore we can approach God with with delight, without hindrance, knowing that as our Father he longs to hear When I was a curate in the church that I was a curate in, um, my now nearly four-year-old, Ava, um, uh, had no sort of concept in many ways of what was going on, and I might be leading the service, um, and then uh, she she would just run up the middle, we met in a school hall. She'd run up the middle of the chairs and just sort of run up to me at the front when the whole church is looking at me and she just didn't care. I was her daddy. And so she was going to run to me and I'd pick her up and often hold her while she was doing that. And then she'd grab the microphone and it would all go wrong. But the idea is, this is my father. I'm just going straight to him. No sense of shame, no sense of of sort of uh, reserve and being like, oh, can I do this? No, like a child, she just ran, well, as a child, she ran straight to me. And therefore, like a child, like children, as children, we can go to our Heavenly Father with boldness. It's an illustration that you might have heard a lot, but I, that probably means it's a good one. Um, there's a picture of JFK sat, it, sat at the desk made out of the timbers, it HMS Resolute, or something like that, in the Oval Office. And the picture shows kind of underneath the desk, one of his children just playing at his feet. The President of the United States of America, the most powerful man in the world, who gets to sit at his feet and play with toys? will his children do. You know, the leaders of the world have to. I don't know, how do you go and see the President? Make an appointment? I don't know. You need to have a pretty good reason to go in there and see him. Not his children, they're his children. They just stroll in and play at his feet. Tim Keller said, who else can wake up the king at three o'clock in the morning for a glass of milk but his child? that is the kind of access we have to God. Um, uh, And Keller again, because he, because Jesus, has the perfect and secure access of an obedient child to the Father, so do we. And the fact that we have 24-7 access, the fact that we're children of God, means that actually our Christian lives are not just all in our heads. The fatherhood of God is something to be experienced, The fatherhood of God is something to be enjoyed. There is intimacy here. Someone once said, prayer is faith become audible. We know that we depend on our Father for everything because of our prayers. Come with me to Ephesians chapter 1. After the massive long sentence, verses 3 to 14 of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, and I can I I basically have heard about your faith, and I'm going to give thanks for your faith. I don't cease to give thanks. I remember you in my prayers. Verse 17 of Ephesians 1, my prayers are that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know the hope and the power and the riches but it's that phrase, the eyes of your heart enlightened. That's what it says um, in the ESV anyway, I don't know what it says in the NIV, but it's this idea, the heart in the Bible is like the, the whole person, not just the head, but the center of emotions, affections, yes, as well as our intellect. But what Paul is saying is, I've told you who you are in Christ, and I pray that you might know it. Not just be able to write it down on a chart, but know it. Have your heart enlightened by the fact that God in Christ by the Spirit is your Father. There is a huge difference between knowing about and knowing. This is, um, I've told this story before, and the first time I told it, I didn't preface it with the fact that it's a made-up illustration, um, this didn't actually happen, but maybe this will help you get this difference between knowing about and knowing. Not a real story, just to say that. Um, there's a, a soldier out in the tents in Afghanistan a few years ago, and uh, he's in the officer's mess, and he's sat talking to another officer, and this soldier says, you know, what? when I was injured and back in, back in hospital, back home, um, Prince William came and visited me, and it was great. I just thought he was such a nice guy, and when he left, I thought, you know what, I'm going to learn everything I can about Prince William. I'm going to learn every fact about his life and find out about it all. Fill my head with all of this knowledge. And do you know what? I think I know more about Prince William than anyone else. And the officer that this guy was talking to started laughing. And then the first officer kind of looked at him and realized the ginger hair wailed emblazoned across his combat fatigues. He's talking to Prince Harry. And he's in for a penny, in for a pound. No, no, no. I know more about Prince William than anyone else in the world. And, And Prince Harry's like, okay, go on, give it a go. So he said, okay, first of all, I know that Prince William's really fun, okay, because I know every statistic about every polo match he's ever played. I know everything about him. I know just how fun Prince William is. And Prince Harry's like, yeah, you want to know Prince William's fun? Try playing hide-and-seek in Buckingham Palace. I know that Prince William's fun. And this guy's like, okay, I'm going to go for something else. I know what Prince William's favorite food is, because I read about it in this interview he gave in, you know, insert popular magazine here. I read about it here, um, and so I know that his favorite food is, you know, filet steak and dauphinoise noir potatoes. That's probably far too common. Anyway, and Prince Harry said, well, I don't know. I've seen him pile down a Big Mac or two in his time. And then this, this officer's like, okay, I'll give it another go. I know just how kind... Prince William is, because I can name every single charity that he is a patron of and every single charity he spends time with. And Prince Harry said, no, 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 I know that Prince William is kind because I've felt his arm around my shoulder when everything else in the world was dark. You might know that God is the father of those who are in Jesus Christ, but have you felt his arm around your shoulder? Have you experienced the delight of the fatherhood of God and known the love of a father who will never let you go. That is what Paul is praying for, for these Ephesians. you might say to me, how do I do that? The answer is, ask for it. There is no method, there is no series of steps I can take you through. Paul says, I pray that the Father of glory would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and that the eyes of your heart would be opened. We need to be enjoying God. We need to know this intimacy and this experience of love. Knowing about God is not the same as knowing his arm around your shoulder when everything else in the world is dark. There's also a simplicity to our prayers. When we know that God is our Father and we are his children, he isn't made more aware of your hurts or needs by how eloquently you make your case to him. He already knows them better than you do. So you can just pray to him and call out for help. Look at the Lord's Prayer. And we we can also be confident. Um, Sometimes, maybe, we're afraid to talk to our fathers because we're embarrassed or we're not sure they'll be able to help or want to help. Um, But actually, as we saw in the Heidelberg Catechism, God is almighty and he is our father. He is both able to do anything and wants to do everything good. So, we have 24 7 access. God's children. Changes your prayer life. Next, God's children have a family. Now, one of the things I think that most easily rolls off the tongue is to talk about church family. I don't know uh, whether you do that at your church, certainly at, at the church I was a curate at Curitas and the church we're at now. Church family lunch, church family this, church family that. And that's right and good. It's good to remind ourselves. But it rolls off the tongue. Do we realize just how? how um, significant it is that in Christ we are brothers and sisters. If a central concept of our discipleship is the fatherhood of God, then the, the brethrenhood, the familialhood, the gender inclusive brotherhood, I don't know what the word is, um, uh, is, is, is really important to how we think about one another. In the early church, um, what was extraordinary in a deeply pagan society a deeply selfish and self-obsessed society. Um, We're no different now. (laughs) We worship idols just like they did. Uh, The society is just as pagan as then. It's just that we've got iPhones to capture it on. Um, The Christians were known because they loved one another. Tertullian, one of the church fathers, um, reported how pagans would look at the church and say, behold, how these Christians love each other. Aristides was a second-century philosopher and this was his account of Christians, as he looked on and said, this is what is known about them. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And from widows they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not, without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him to their homes, and rejoice over him, rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the Spirit and in God." And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each of, each of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him, and carefully sees to his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. Isn't that extraordinary? They hear that there's a Christian in prison, or perhaps a Christian getting absolutely vilified in the press, or in school, or in work, and do they hold back and say, I'm not going to be associated with him? No, they say, I am yours, brother or sister, and I'm going to be identified with you. Because that's what it meant to go and visit someone in prison. Someone was in prison for being a Christian, and you went to visit them. You were saying, yep, I'm with them. I'm with them. That was what it looked like in the early church. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Jesus, in response to Peter, who boasted of leaving family behind, you know, after the, 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 the story of the, the rich man and the, the eye of the needle and the camel, and I can't remember where it is, but Peter says, you know, haven't we left, you know, so many people to come and follow you? And Jesus says, yes, but you will receive many times more fields and houses and family in this life and in the life to come, eternal life. You become a Christian and you get a family. God didn't save us as individuals and then we decide that we're going to go and join the church. We are saved into a family. Wherever we are in the world, the water of our baptism and Jesus' blood is a closer bond than any flesh and blood we have. Now, that's not to say we don't look after our family. Paul has very strong words for people who don't look after their flesh and blood family but the fact that we are in Christ, we are bound together in a family that, unlike any other family, will survive the judgment of God and last forever. I told you um, in the interview at the start about my daughter Talitha, we actually um, have our oldest child uh, is our son Nathaniel. Uh, We were on holiday in America, And my wife was pregnant, and we were told, um, this is fine, it was just before I started theological college, we had a bit of time, so we did a bit of a road trip. And the doctors said to my wife, you know, great, go and have a great time, you're pregnant, but it'll all be fine. We got to Washington, D.C., and my wife was about 24 weeks pregnant, 23, 24 weeks pregnant, and she went into labor. And we were all on our own in Washington, D.C., and didn't know anyone there. We had some friends over in California, and so I, I messaged my friend in California and said, we're losing our baby, and just don't know what to do he had spent a week in Washington, D.C. with a church there. He was training at a seminary in California. And he emailed the church pastor and said, this is what's happening to my friends. And the church pastor said, I'm on holiday. I um, said vacation. I'm on vacation. Um, and, but, but he emailed his elders and said, what can you do? And one of those elders was a government lawyer called Chris. And Chris stood up from his desk and announced to his office that he wouldn't be in for a few days. And he came to the hospital. And he spent the next couple of days with us weeping, praying, getting us food, sorting out the nightmare bureaucracy of the American medical system. And Nathaniel was stillborn. And Chris said that he was going to pay out of his own money for Nathaniel's remains to be cremated and sent back over to the UK. That was not a cheap thing. And I said to him, thank you, (laughs) didn't really know what else to say, and he said, well, I'm not going to say you're welcome, because we're brothers in Christ, and this is what he would have us do. This is what it means to be family in Christ. As you look at the people around you, think about that quote from Aristides, would you fast so that they had something to eat? Would you give of all of you had so that they were okay? Okay if they are mocked, if they are suffering for being a Christian, will you go and stand with them and hold them up? Children of the living God have a family. We are to love one another. God's children bear the family likeness. Be who you are in Christ. Sanctification by sonship. We are to, oh, which way was it right? We are to be Williamses, not Joneses. This is what it means to be a Christian. We are to bear the family likeness. Yes, our justification and our adoption are by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Hallelujah. Our sins are forgiven and the basis of our entry into the inheritance that is surely ours is entirely Christ's work and not ours. But the notion of adoption cannot be ignored. We are to bear the family likeness. We don't obey God's commands to gain our adoption, we obey them to live it out. I think there should be a quote um, from John Calvin. Uh, is there? No, there's, oh, no, hold on, there we go. Um, it is not the mere fear of punishment that restrains the Christian from sin. Loving and revering God as his Father... Although there were no hell, he would revolt at the very idea of offending him. We are to be those who bear the family likeness. We have to own our identity as sons and daughters of the living God. Paul talks about this time and time again. Think about um, the book of Ephesians. I think you've got um, the verses there on the handout Ephesians, many of you will know, is a book of two halves. The first half is kind of Paul saying, "You have been chosen and adopted in Christ. These are all the blessings that are yours. Three chapters, um, barely, if any, command in sight." And then he hits Ephesians chapter four, and he says, "In light of that, in light of the fact that you are children of the king of the universe, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you." to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Live life worthy of being children of the righteous and holy King. We have received amazing things in Christ. We should be living in a way that befits the royal name that has been bestowed upon us. We are free, but in the words of the prayer book, in thy, sorry, yeah, in thy service is perfect freedom. We are free to serve God and obey him as his children. Perhaps another little illustration. Imagine a duck pond. Um, I don't know, Basingstoke, is there a well-known duck pond near here? Do you have ducks in Basingstoke? I don't know. Um, Imagine a duck pond. You know what ducks are? Great. You know what ducks are? They're there in the pond, um, and every Wednesday, every Wednesday afternoon, the ducks get together in the pond, and they all, they sort of have a meeting, as, you know, a one duck kind of stands at the front and says, fellow ducks, look, we have wings, look, we have wings, look at our wings, and all the ducks kind of quack, 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 translate that, yes, we have wings, isn't this fantastic, yes, don't we have wings, this is brilliant, and and they kind of spend, I don't know, about an hour doing that, sing a few songs, Um, and and then um, after, after they've done that, they put their wings back down by their side, and they all waddle home. We are to be who we are. The gospel of Jesus Christ announces for you, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you are a child of the living God, you are justified, you are redeemed, you are adopted, and you are set for an eternity of glory. Don't hear that gospel announced and then waddle home. I have just told you that you have wings, so fly. This is what Paul is saying. Live a life worthy of this calling fly home, don't waddle, put off your old selves. And in Ephesians, he kind of, he kind of um, carries on with this sort of, uh, this image of, of, of being who you are. So particularly chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. Bear the family likeness. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God chapter 5, verse 8, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We are to put off our old selves and put on the new. Put off the sonship that belonged to wrath and destruction and death and the devil and put on the sonship that Christ has given to us. The sonship, which is his by nature, is now ours by grace. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus um, says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecu- persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We are to be who we are. We are to be the sons that God has made us to be in Christ. So the place of obedience, seeking after holiness, is central to being God's child. Next, God's children are in the family business. The son was sent into the world to seek and save the lost. Bearing the family name is missional. If we are children of the living God, we too are are sent into this world with the message of the only begotten Son, but we are to be part of that work of seeking and saving the lost as we point to Him, because this world is going to hell, and this world needs to know the love of a Father that will never let them go, and they will only find it in Jesus Christ. They are looking for it everywhere. Everyone you know is looking for truth, beauty, and goodness somewhere, because that's how they were made. But unless they are looking in Jesus Christ, they are looking in a dangerous and fatal place. You are a child of the living God, and you are called to invite others to become children of the living God by telling them of Jesus Christ. God's children are in the family business. Matthew five sixteen let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. St. Mary's Basingstoke needs to be looking out and saying we are here on a mission because we are children of the living God. And also that means showing a cross-centered generosity in every part of our lives. Yes to one another. Do good to all, especially to those in the household of faith, says in Galatians 6, but still do good to all. One theologian said, at their and our most faithful moments, this is how Christians have been known, not because they wielded great political power, but because they wielded great sacrificial service. That same theologian goes on to say, we should be marked by a radical generosity with the gospel and with all that we have to the world around us, saying, we've been given it all in Christ, let let me give it to you. And he goes on to say that the nails in Jesus' hands have some serious implications for the cash in ours. We are in the family business, radical generosity, giving all we have for the salvation of a fallen world, as we point them to the one Saviour, the one and only Saviour, Jesus Christ. Finally, God's children have an inheritance that is out of this world. We saw that with the question that came up, maybe some of you had left, but we are sons now, and yet we are waiting for the fullness of our sonship. That passage in 1 John 3 that we started with, uh, we are sons, and yet what we will be has not yet been seen, because the best is yet to come, because we are waiting for Jesus to come back. So we are sons, but like people who've tasted kind of the first fruits but then grown because the full crop is yet to arrive, we still largely inhabit the realm of hope. Christians are awaiting people. The best is yet to come. It is cosmic and it is out of this world. And so we need to know that we live kind of sizzling in the tension between these two ages, the old evil age and the new age, which has already dawned with Christ and one day will come in all its fullness. And we need to wait faithfully, as sons and daughters of the living God, but anticipating the wonder of that day that is yet to come. A friend of mine lost one of his parents um, a long time ago, and yeah. um, his his surviving parent remarried, and the person they remarried um, is, isn't particularly nice, and um, it's been quite a nasty fallout in the family. And because of that relationship with the new spouse and their children, it's been made very clear to my friend that the inheritance that his parent was going to leave them is no longer going to be his. It's just going to be left all to the new family that um, that parent has married into. Modest but generous inheritance. And my friend was upset by this, very upset, as you can understand. But he said, I'm a Christian. This isn't the end of the world because I'm inheriting the world. My inheritance, in fact, is out of this world. He has a father who has promised him an inheritance that will never perish, that can never be taken away, that can never be assigned to someone else. No matter how many additions to the family there are, this infinite inheritance will remain the same. What God has for you on that day when Jesus comes back and we are raised is more glorious than any words can give voice to, any picture will image for you. Our inheritance in Christ is out of this world because we inherit the infinite God himself. And this will be our experience, bliss forevermore, caught up in that triune life of love. John 14, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Do you believe it? That Jesus has ascended into heaven to prepare a place for you, if you are with him. Our forever is infinite joy with the one who is infinite joy, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Into that life we enter. This is eternal life, Jesus said in John 17, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Amen.
0: Um, Let's start with this question, though, uh, off the back of the last session. When we talk about God as Father, are we referring to the Godhead in all his persons or only God the Father? Uh, What error does your answer prevent us from making? That's
1: like an essay question. Yes.
0: Um, Do you want to say the first bit of that? So, yeah,
1: who are we talking about when we talk about God as Father? um, It depends... In in one sense, it depends who you're talking to in church history. So there are a couple of guys, um, uh, sort of part of the A-team. So there are a group of theologians in church history whose names all begin with a And they're all really great, and I'm big fans. Uh, But two of them, uh, question mark Augustine, but certainly Thomas Aquinas, thought that actually it is the essence of God, that is the one being of God, that we kind of generally refer to as Father, because he is the one who created us, and that's the kind of link that's going on there. Um, Now Aquinas is one of the, he's a very good theologian, got some things wrong, but lots of things very right. Um, And so, you know, you're very reluctant to quibble with Aquinas there. Um, but I think the, the pressure of the New Testament, the way in which it goes, seems to suggest that we are sons in the Son. So when Jesus ascends in John 20, verse 17, um, Mary, it, it seems, is holding on to him, and, and Jesus says, don't cling to me, um, because I'm, I'm g- going up, um, and, and go and tell my disciples that I ascend to be with my God and your God, with my Father and your Father. Carry on thank <laughs> you, um, with uh, my father and your father, and, and the, just generally the, the, the way in which, and Galatians 4 as well, that God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, so we cry out, Abba, Father. And of course, Abba was the, the word on the, the lips of Jesus in um, Mark 14, verse 26. So there does seem to be a sense in which we are those who are in Christ, therefore those who are in the Son, who relate to God the Father. So that seems to be the, the way in which the, the kind of the pressure of the New Testament works. I don't, know, I don't know quite what the second part of that is getting at, but certainly um, there, there is a way of talking about how God is Father, Son, and Spirit um, that makes it sound as though the Son and the Spirit are less God than the Father. So um, uh, we're kind of like, we, uh, you know, The Spirit is kind of like the force that brings us into this great sort of semi-God, the Son, and we all just kind of point up towards God the Father because he's the God that really counts. Um, And so there is a way of putting this that makes it sound a bit like that. And so um, we need to be very careful in saying that God the Father, Son, and Spirit are one being, one essence is sometimes how it's used, and that there's no division or chopping up of that essence. And It's not like one bit's bigger or better than the other. It's the same one being of God. And we are caught up into that one being of God as we're united to the Son, and we share the relation that the Son has to the Father, um, but we don't in any way kind of chop God up into bits. I don't know if that's the error that the question... I'll
0: just help us with this, because some of us might be hearing that and thinking, my goodness, who am I praying to? Um, just help us out with that. I mean.
1: Yeah, so Jesus said, when you pray, say, Our Father, who art in heaven. So, there are places in Scripture where, um, where the Son seems to be directly addressed. Uh, there, are, there are no obvious places where the Spirit, the Spirit of God, as such, is prayed to as the Spirit, and yet, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen says there is one name, three definite articles, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in the Psalms, praise to the name of, of Yahweh, uh, the name of the Lord, um, is frequent. You know, praise the name of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. So certainly we know that Father, Son, and Spirit are all equally included in our praise and in our worship. And yet, there seems to be this, this kind of hint in the New Testament. Ephesians two eighteen 18, actually, is um, it's quite a helpful verse here. Um, for through him, that is through the Son, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. So our prayers are directed to the Father, because we are in the Son by the Spirit, um, but that in no way makes the Son or Spirit less than God, or sort of involved in doing something different than the Father, we're caught up into this triune life. And if we can't explain that anymore, that's because God's not like us, and all of our explanations break down at some point. Is that
0: yes, that's great but do <coughs> pray don't worry about yeah good little rice yeah oh yeah
1: yeah 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 Jesus said, when you pray our Father in heaven um, go there it's a good place
0: great thank you um, a question here just on uh, nature of God as well um, how can we be sure that the Lord is male? Um, a lot of uh, the, the Bible calls God male um, but uh, in these kind of gender fluid times uh, can we be sure he's male?
1: Wow. (laughs) Is this being recorded? No, it's fine. Um, You've got
0: about 30 seconds on
1: that. Great, thanks. Um, So various things, God God is not like us, God does not have a body. That automatically means that the way in which we use the gendered pronouns that the Bible gives us, the he's and the his and the him's, and the fact that it's father and son um, means that how we're understanding those things is not the same way as we understand male humans. So we need to say, first of all, that God is not like us, that he is incomprehensible, um, and therefore we, we, need to, we can't assign gender to God. Um, and so we need to say that first of all. Therefore, some people say, well, you know, the Bible is a product of a particular culture at a particular time, and this male masculine language that is applied to God is just a cultural product, and therefore, um, because there are various feminine metaphors used of God at one point is likened to a brooding chick or a brooding hen over her <laughs> chicks, um, and the, uh, the, the uh, way in which wisdom in the Old Testament, and there's a s- idea that is, is alluding to Jesus, perhaps in Proverbs 8, wisdom is kind of a feminine picture there, um, that therefore actually we should be able to talk about God as mother, daughter, and something else um, as easily as we talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I want to say you need to be quite careful there, because yes, the Bible is a product of a particular culture in a particular time, but it's also spoken by the infinite God, who is a perfectly fit witness concerning himself. And so if he has chosen to speak in these ways, then that's okay. We'll let him do that, I think. Um, but as we hear those those gender pronouns and father, son, and spirit and, and so on, we need to just be very careful that we don't imagine God to be male. There's a lot there's a sort of other stuff that you could go into there, but I think I want to put those two things out. God is not like us, don't think of him as having a, a body and therefore that kind of thing. But at the same time, he has revealed himself with male pronouns, and um, the son was incarnate as a man, and so there's, there's, there's a lot to talk about there. It's not as simple um, as some people make it sound.
0: Thank you. That's a really clear answer. Um, I love this one. Why is systematic theology not more well-known Stroke not more commonly used?
1: Ah, uh, wow. What a question. What a question. Um, I, I don't know is my honest answer. Um, the, the preaching of God's word, the verse-by-verse verse, um, uh, preaching that happens as uh, the ordained officers of the church and, and those with preaching gifts stand up and say, let's look at the word of God together and declare it, verse-by-verse verse is so important, because that's how God has given us his word. So it's, it's vital that we have, and that, the word used that as expository preaching, that kind of moving through a passage verse-by-verse, verse, absolutely vital to the health of the church. However, As well, on top of that, alongside it and helping it, the practice of systematic theology helps kind of build a bit of a a framework. It builds a bit of sort of the big pictures and the big areas that help us put it all together. And so I don't want to do an either or. I want to do a both and. And so that Heidelberg Catechism that I was talking about um, has 130-odd questions, I think, And the idea is that that the way that Reformed churches um, used to do things was that everyone would, uh, I mean, I'm not prescribing this at all, but the practice was you would have a Sunday school that everyone would go to, and you would learn catechism and you would learn theology there, and then sort of have your worship service and have expository preaching. So what you're doing now is kind of that sort of practice, having systematic theology and saying, "Let's, let's... recognize that God is one, that the Bible is one, he doesn't contradict himself, and that all of this is true, well therefore what conclusions can we draw? Because that's actually going to help us. And there's this kind of relationship as we read the Bible, we can start seeing, well this passage is talking about this idea, well where else is this in the Bible and does this passage help me build that idea up? But then those other things that I know, do they help me understand this passage better? So we've been thinking about the fatherhood of God next time you're kind of reading something that talks about us being sons, you've actually now got a little bit of that kind of systematic theology of being a son or daughter of the living God. And as you're reading that passage, maybe you'll see more in it because you're kind of fitting it into this conversation between the big picture and the parts. And I think we need both. The question as to why that doesn't happen, um, I, I, I don't know. I wish it, I wish it happened more because um, it, it's great. With people
0: like you are trying to do it, yeah. which is great, yes. Um, final question here. Uh, this is a great question, uh, good one to finish on. Um, how do we share our identity as children of God with non-Christians who are confused about theirs? How do we share our identity as children of God with non-Christians who are confused about theirs?
1: Hmm. Um... I mean, so, so many, uh, there's so many things behind this question. I mean, I, I think uh, sort of on the, on the personal subjective level, enjoying being a child of God is, being, is compelling, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm a, a, a big fan of Welsh rugby. Sorry, but I am. Um, and I get really excited about Welsh rugby. And my, my daughter, Ava, who is, well, she set foot in Wales, because my dad's still there, but, you know, she, she's got, you know, no sort of physical connection with Wales, except kind of through that. Um, at the weekend, I had her on the sofa screaming for Wales, because she was so, oh, daddy's really excited about this, I want to get involved, this is amazing. Um, well, it's the same as we, sh- as we share Christ. If you don't, if you, if being a Christian hasn't made a jot of difference to your life, why should your friends care? Whereas if we know that we are children of the living God, that all of this stuff is true, then we should really be enjoying it, and that in itself is compelling. We have a, there's a community here, there is a family here, it is, is it a family that opens up the doors and says, come on in and join? In a society that's fragmented, isolated, we're all on our phones, we're all on social media, we're, we're, we're becoming increasingly uncertain of all those things, we can say we are, we know who we are, and we want you to be a part of us. That is compelling. And then, sort of on the intellectual level, as we're talking about these things, just exp- somewhere as you press in conversation, there is an awareness. As Paul says in Romans 1 the attributes of God, his eternal power and divine nature, are obvious in the world around us. It is obvious. Everyone believes in God, regardless of what they say. Paul says everyone believes in God, but we suppress that truth in unrighteousness. We don't want to believe in God, and we will deny it, and yet every single person lives as though they believe God is true. At some point in their life, they're not being consistent with a belief that God doesn't exist, because they don't live like a collection of atoms that are randomly bouncing around and happen by chance to have come together to form this person. They live as someone who loves, they live as someone who hurts, They live as someone who is looking for satisfaction, therefore they are living as someone who knows that God is true, even if they deny it vehemently. Think of it like a a beach ball in a pool. You're kind of pushing it down, but at some point it's going to pop up. And in everyone's lives, they are pushing the truth of God down, they are pushing down their identity as a creature of a creator God, and they know he exists, and they live as though he exists, even though they deny it, at some point it's going to pop up as you talk to people, try and make it pop up. Try and help them see that somehow that that reality that they know to be true about God is, is, is manifesting itself in their life. And there are as many different ways as that happens as there are people in the world, so I can't give you any more than that. But believe that that is true and be confident that God raises the dead. Chris,
0: thank you so much for in and spend their time there's a lot of work that goes into this and coming here and delivering these over the last couple of hours we are very very grateful Uh, so let's say thank you to chris